I want to ask you this morning, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? A lot of you. James chapter 1. If you have a black ESV study Bible, uh, that's page 1011, I believe, in this Bible. But turn there or tune in to James chapter 1. We got a little um, Rice Krispie treat for you this morning with some Snap Crackle Pop. Is that Rice Krispies? What? Yeah, Snap Crackle. Yeah, I'm going back to 1970s commercials in my mind here, but... Uh, James chapter 1, we'll get there in a second. And as you're turning to James 1, I just want to say how, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm getting nostalgic and proud, not proud, like hopefully not the pride that comes before the fall, but just proud, kind of, you know, when you swell with gratitude to what God is doing. But I stood here last night and got to preside over the marriage ceremony of Morgan and Josh, a young couple. They're one of 15, listen up, single people, one of 15 couples that have met at Fondren Church through the years, okay? How cool is that? keeping a tabula. So if you're single, just say hello to somebody on your row or maybe get up now and start walking around. We'll give you a few minutes before we, before we get there. But no, it's just good to see people like Stan and Ramona Troy and Mark and Becky Groom serving so faithfully throughout the weekend to pull this, this wedding off and to see this couple unite in marriage and think about the blessings God has been given to our church as uh, as the gospel goes forth, as relationships are formed and stuff. And it's just really good, just excited about that and excited about what God has for us in the future. James 1, let's do work there. James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. We've said, just to give you context, that James is a half-brother of Christ. Interesting that he doesn't throw that card in. It just said, James, I'm a bondservant, I'm a slave, I'm a servant of Christ. But he's writing, I think we've said, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, as the ESV says, the dispersion. He's writing to Jewish Christians. They're scattered. Why are they scattered? They're scattered because they've been persecuted. And so he starts off, we've read a couple of weeks ago, he starts off talking about temptation, talking about trials, trials and suffering. And no time for light, fluffy stuff, right? When you're scattered, when you've been persecuted, jump right into it. And that's what James does. Let's look at verse 19 and following. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We, we got this, right? We don't, need to, we don't need to be here today. Everybody's got that one, right? I mean, you've mastered that one. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perceives, and perseveres rather, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious, religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We've titled this message this morning, When Religion Goes Wrong. A lot in your life and mine, a lot in our world can go wrong. We see it every day in the headlines. We see it in our hearts and our homes. A lot can go wrong. Today, when religion goes wrong, when, when passion gets polluted, when your devotion is diluted, when you get off track, when there's impurities uh, in your faith, when your motives are mixed, when things just don't seem to be genuine. And I think we all experience that. I'm the pastor. 
I experienced it in my life this week. I feel like things have gone off path with my heart. And I had to do business with God this very week. And it was a little painful to make a confession before him and let him do some work. I had to silence myself and get away from all of you guys and all the noise and the clamor and just be honest. But our faith, our passion, our devotion, it can get off track. And James teaches us, this is my own little outline that I crafted, but it, it teaches us that the religion goes off course when, when it's fake, when we talk about it, but we only talk about it. We don't do anything about it. A religion goes wrong, it gets off course when it's fruitless, when there's no discernible difference in our lives or we're just like the world around us. And it, it can get off course when we don't realize that this is a good news message and that it's for people. It's for everybody and it's for people who need it. James ends this particular chapter and it's going to segue perfectly into, into next week and into chapter two about not showing favoritism and about being careful to love those who don't seem so lovely and to look out for those who really need the good news of the gospel. You can look online. We have a, a, a whole department in our government that their sole mission is to monitor and protect our food supply to make sure that our food is pure. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, we, we all want healthy, clean drinking water. We want pure food. We, we value purity when it comes to what we put in our bodies, don't we? It's interesting, though. We live in an age where things are genetically modified, right? Where there's, there's growth hormones injected into it. There's artificial coloring. I looked at a juice bottle in my own refrigerator this week, big old apple juice bottle, and it said 10% real juice. And I, you know, I didn't have time to stick around and read the contents of what the other 90% were, but it's 10% actual real juice, 10% pure. I don't, I don't get the other 90. But, but what is pure and what is valuable? The, the, there was a, a novel written by Upton Sinclair called The Jungle, and this novel was written in the early 1900s, 1906, I believe. And in this novel, he wanted to write a story and expose the harsh working conditions for immigrants in industrial Chicago. But what it did is it put actually more attention on the meatpacking plants and our food supply, and it led, many believe, to the creation of the FDA. Is your food pure? You know, there are standards that our government has for the purity of the food that you and I eat. Here we go. Apple butter. If the mold count is 12% or more, if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams, five or more whole insect parts per 100 grams, the FDA will pull it from the shelves. Otherwise, it goes on your English muffin. Coffee beans, without, uh, they're withdrawn from the shelves, taken off. If an average of 10% or more are insect infested, or if there's one live insect in each of two or more immediate containers. Mushrooms cannot be sold if there's an average of 20 or more maggots per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. Hot dogs. <laughs> you don't even want to know. What do they say? If you like sausage, don't go to the sausage factory. But we want, we want what is pure. I mean, we're talking about our health and our well-being, our longevity, right? But in our faith, if it's going to be healthy and functioning and well, and if we're going to be able, as James says in chapter one, if, we're going to, if it's going to be a faith that perseveres, then we're going to need to be concerned about the purity, about the contents. So he's saying, hey, we, religion goes wrong when it's fruitless. 
when it has no impact or bearing on your life, when you're just like the world or when it's fake, when you're just talking about it. I, I was reading a post of one of our young people in our church who posted a, a quote from Bob Goff this week in his great work, Love Does. You guys read Love Does? And that book gives you an idea of where, of what it, where his heartbeat is. And he talks about how we talk about Bible studies. A lot of you are in a Bible study. I think you should be in a Bible study. I think you should study the Bible personally. I think you should get in a circle with people and regularly, weekly uh, study the scripture. But he talks about how we study and study and study and talk and talk and theorize and theorize with so little doing. And he's with a group of men in San Diego. They call it a Bible doing. And they really want to focus on living it out on practicing what is preached in front of them. James, I believe, this morning gives us a few things that can help us help our passion to not be polluted and our devotion not to be diluted for our faith to be genuine and more and more pure. And one of the things he talks about that I want to put in front of you this morning is in the receiving. It's in the receiving. He says what? To receive the word that's implanted in you. Very, I think, strategic language that James uses, hearkening back to what God has said from the Old and the Old Testament and through the time of Jesus, the word that's implanted in you. Gatorade has a commercial that shows seriously perspiring athletes and they're sweating the, the actual color of the Gatorade, right? Have you seen this? And it asks the question, is it in you? And James is saying, is it in you? Is this word of truth, is it planted in you? Now, the word planted is a beautiful word. When you plant something, something can grow from it. When you throw a rock across a lake, maybe some of you have done that in the early part of this summer. I went and played golf with a young man in our church last week. We went out to the refuge. And I, bought a, I brought a whole lot of balls with me, and I needed them on that day. And I remember skipping one over the water and we were both kind of cheering for it, not that we'd have any effect on the outcome of the ball, but we were kind of doing like this and cheering for the ball, like, skip, skip, skip. We were hoping it could get over the water. It didn't, it just went in, thud, went to the drink. But when you throw something or hit a golf ball on the surface of the water, it's gonna skim just a few times at, at the most. And ultimately it goes thud. But if you plant something in the ground, something grows. And that's the idea here, that something's been put in you. It's not a shallow skip across the water that's going to end somewhere quickly. It's something that's put in you, and the desire that God has for us is that we would grow. Psalm 1, it talks about the man, the man or the woman that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And this person, it says, delights in the law of the Lord. This person meditates on it day and night. And this person, the Bible promises you and me, is like a tree planted by streams of water whose fruit yields itself in its season. And it will prosper. It will have life and it will give life. And I think James is referring to that. There's a word that's planted in you, but he wants us to receive it because some people we read don't receive it very well. And I think those, those two are correlated. At first I didn't get it, but I see it now. When James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, I, I jested earlier. We don't have that one down, do we? How many of you like me, man, you, you, in many ways you live the opposite of that. You're really quick to speak and very slow so listen, nobody's raising their hands. Help me out. You'll get out on time. Don't you know how this works, right? Yeah. Nobody wants to be identified with me. That's what it is. But James is saying, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. What happens when you're angry? 
Things happen biologically, phys physiologically in your body. Your blood pressure goes up. Extra sugar is released into your bloodstream. Your pupils dilate. That's when it gets scary. Uh, extra perspiration. There's things that happen in your body and none of those things allow themselves for you to be a good listener. In my office, just last week, a couple comes in and their home is full of anger. Now I love them, I'm glad they came. I pray that Jesus helps and heals. I know that he can, I hope they're pliable to what he can do in their hearts. But there was so much anger and I was reminded of what the proverb says that a fool gives full vent to his anger. And here's what I know, when Proverbs 15, one says a gentle answer turns away wrath, I've had to learn that in my marriage, thank God for my wife, because sometimes I have anger and I thank God time and time again, not all the time, she's not perfect, but many, many times she provides the gentle answer. And in that moment I think, Whew. because had it not been gentle, I, what, what would have happened to mine? It would have escalated, right? Y'all are looking at me like I'm some monster. Come on, don't judge me. Don't judge me, you're worse than me. But a gentle answer turns away wrath, but, but it just gets ugly and it snowballs if you have two people that are angry and that are given full vent to their anger. But I think James is saying to us that when you're angry, when you're not quick to listen, and slow to speak and slow to anger, you're not receiving. Because when you're angry, you're this, aren't you? and your, your arms are folded, your spirit is closed, and your mind is made up, and you're not listening. And you are not able to receive what God has for you. That anger, somebody needs to hear this this morning, that anger needs to be put at the altar. Jesus talks about what chokes out the word. The deceitfulness of riches, the worries, the cares of this life, the lust for other things. And that care, that worry, it could be anger. And it could choke out the word of truth that God has for you. So receiving the word is vitally important. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And James also says something that because I'm a preacher and I don't want to be typecast or stereotyped, I almost don't want to go here. But he says to put away the moral filth, to put away the rampant wickedness. Now I could go hellfire and brimstone, right? I could start stomping and finger pointing and we could really have church today, right? Put away the filth. Here he, he talks about two avenues of that filth, a bad tongue and a bad temper. But there are just things that clog the arteries of our spiritual lives. Things that get in the way. Things that we have to be honest about. And isn't it true that when you don't do business with the Lord, when you let filth build up, when you're not putting away things that are wicked in your life, other people notice there's collateral damage there? Put away. He uses that phrase, put away. It's the same thing that Paul uses in Ephesians 4 when he says, get rid of the anger, the malice, the wrath. Get rid of all that, the lack of forgiveness. Put it, put it away. My wife is driving a rental car. Not because she wants to, but because she was in a wreck. She wants me to real quickly tell you that it wasn't her fault. 
She was hit by a teenage driver who just got his driver's license, who was leaving the school at Jackson Prep, who pulled out, he was looking at his phone, hadn't, had his, he had his license for about a month, was looking at his phone, composing a text, hits a car that hit the car that she was in. So she's got a rental car. Man, she's had the rental car for a couple of weeks now, and they said a month, a month, and her car's total, they said now. So we're looking at a, we're looking at a new car. You know, to, to receive, to be attentive, you have to put away. Don't you know this? Put away the cell phone when you're driving. Put away the cell phone when you're with somebody that you love. Put away the cell phone in, your, in church unless you're looking at James chapter 1. Put away that cell phone around the dinner table. Parents, let your kids be mad at you but impose upon them certain times and places. But put away. In order to receive, you have to put some things aside. And in an age of tablets and screens where we're gaming and surfing and posting, put it away so that you can give the others needed attention. Whether you're conversing, loving, driving, whatever it is, put away. It needs to be set aside. And James is saying here that there's some filth that in our lives can collect. Now, filth is a, it's an interesting word. I think it probably has connotations to something sensual, pornographic, or sexual. But filth is just the, the, the sins of the flesh or the spirit that quench the spirit or grieve the spirit of God. Put those things away. Why? So that you can receive the word implanted in you. James goes on to say, he talked about remembering, not just receiving, but remembering. Now, when you first read James 1, if you're like me, you read this thing about the mirror, and you're thinking, mm, this is really deep and profound. There's something there. I've got to read it multiple times, and I'm, I'm all for you reading it multiple times. But I think it's a pretty simple illustration. You look in the mirror, you walk away, and you forget what you've seen. Now, let's pretend we're playing Family Feud. That would make me Steve Harvey. And let's say the category are things men do in front of the mirror, okay? Things men do in front of the mirror. Okay, what are your answers? We got Flex on the front row. That would be my son. <laughs> like his father. Shave, combing hair, flossing, smiling, and posing. Now, raise your hand if you're a man. If you're a man and you pose in front of the mirror, raise your hand. No, don't. Don't. I, I don't even want to see. I don't want to see. I don't want to know. Here's what's very interesting. In my study this week, for the first time ever, for the first time ever, I realized that the Greek word that James uses is act for the word man is actually male. And more times, way more times than not in Scripture, when that word man is used or mankind, it's, 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 it's a generic for, for all of us. But here, James, I think, wants to drive the point home. And what's true way long ago is really true now that it's different, right? How men look in the mirror, or should be. How men look in the mirror and how women look in the mirror is different. And James is saying that it's easy to be like a man where you don't gaze, you just glance at it. And then you go away and you forget. One night this week, Susan and I grabbed the car keys 
and we went out. We just went for a drive. We took the dog and just went for a drive. And about an hour later, we were getting ice cream. And we started kind of giggling, um, just the two of us, because uh, we got ice cream for all three of us. And we were thinking, you know, this is kind of fun because check this out, we didn't tell any of the kids we were leaving. <laughs> and we began to kind of play this fantasy out in our mind that they'd be texting us going, where's mom, not dad probably, where's the dog, where's mom, where's the dog, hey, what's going on, we're worried. And we didn't get any text. <laughs> we came home and it became slowly, progressively apparent to us that they didn't even know we left. In life, with anything, there's not noticing, there's noticing and forgetting, or there's noticing and remembering and letting it stay with you. I remember weeks ago when one of our pastors, Nick Crawford, led us in baby dedication up here. In one of the scriptures he pointed back to was Deuteronomy chapter 6, which talks about the word implanted in you. And it gives great advice to mamas and dads and parents. And it says that the word that you ought to write it on, the, on your heart, the tablet of your heart, and impress it on your kids and talk about it when you're sitting down and when you get up and when you go into the roads and when you're at the dinner table. And that you write it or you place it as a symbol on your hands and your foreheads and the door frames and the gates. In other words, where you go, always you keep it in front of you. If anybody, if any of you are obsessed about something or you worship something, you know that's what you do. Don't, don't let that idea sound too radical. That's what you do. Some of you men, that's the way you are with sports. You, you already know that there's 80 something days to college football. I had to research that. But some of you know that, right? Because you keep it in front of you all the time. My wife's not from the South. When she moved here from the West Coast, she couldn't believe how important SEC football is, right? It's written on the tablet of our heart. We impress it upon our kids. We talk about it, we take it with us. It's on our hands and our foreheads and the door frames and the gates. It's everywhere we go, some of us, right? Because it's important to us and you remember things. I've got a 17-year-old sports statistician, an encyclopedia back there, right? If you remember something, you enjoy it and you take it with you. Remember, don't forget it. Don't look in the mirror and walk away and forget. Remember it. In order to remember it, you will have to be very concerted. But look at what Moses says. That was Deuteronomy 6. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 8. He says this because he knows you. He knows me. But that, that is the time to be careful. That is when you go into the city and you are prospering. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else. What? Be careful. Why? Do not become proud at that time. And here we go. And forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness of food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Here we go. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. 
He tells us in Deuteronomy 6 to remember to do all these things, to go to great lengths to remember the word implanted in you. Why? Because he knows our tendency is to forget. And success, comfort can be the great culprit many times, many times over. It's not just in receiving, James says. It's not just in remembering, but it's in responding. It's in responding, actually doing something about what he says. One day, your life will be over. And the Bible gives us this picture of us being invited in and Jesus saying, do you know this? Well done, good and faithful servant. Every word of that from Matthew is very important. Well done. And let me draw the contrast. I've done this before. He, he won't say well said, not well thought, not nice theories, not good plans, not cool dreams, but well done, good and faithful servant. If any area, if there's any area of your life where you're really frustrated today, financially or physically, relationally, whatever it may be, academically, vocationally, in many ways it could be tied back to your inability to do something. Jesus told a story offered a teaching for us about people who go the extra mile because for some of us we're bare minimum people bare minimum people do bare minimum things they do bare minimum things in their marriage they do bare minimum things with their kids they do bare minimum things in their jobs and careers and what do bare minimum people get as a result of that they get the d minus you barely got through and then there are good enough people good enough people do pretty good they go 80 yards and then kick the field goal. But there are, Jesus said, there are some people who go the extra mile. But that extra mile over and over and over again in scripture I see are the people who don't just hear, they really take notice. And they build things into their lives to make it a part of the very fabric of their lives. And then they look to do something about it not even a willingness to do something about it now scripture tells us the psalmist says that a willing spirit God will not despise so I would pray for you that you would have a willing spirit to be obedient in any area that God is calling you to to be obedient to be willing but nowhere in scripture does it say be willing to obey my commands. It says obey. It, nowhere in scripture does it says be willing to have a generous spirit. It says be generous. Nowhere in scripture does it say be willing to get rid of some filthy stuff in your life. But it says get rid of the moral filth. It's actually, it's in the doing. I love my friend Cheney who leads Fondren's First Thursday. He says, you see this on the signs around this beautiful community. It says, 
preponderance first Thursday, a critical mass of dreamers and doers. And, and we need both, don't we? We need dreams. But we need the doers. We need people, as one pastor says, we need people to say, wow, and we need people to say, how? But what you and I are charged to do is to live it out and to circle up and to encourage each other to live it out in all spheres of our lives. Now, James, I'll close with this, but James talks about looking intently at the perfect law of liberty. Now, that uh, sounds American, doesn't it? It sounds like it's getting us ready for July 4th. But what does this perfect law of liberty mean? Because law doesn't sound very good, does it? Law is not a word that brings joy to your heart. If you say law to me, I think, okay, what do I have to read? Where's the document? How, how lengthy is it? How burdensome is it? And then what do I have to do? But James uses a very curious expression. It's the perfect law of liberty, of freedom, that this law, it makes you free. Now quickly, I'm going to do this really fast. I want to borrow on some seminary stuff from Reformed theologian John Calvin. And I want to talk to you quickly about this word law because this could really help you in understanding Scripture for those of you who are desiring to dig in deeper. But there are, um, with the people of Israel, there were three uh, types of laws. Civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. Now, the civil law, you remember, God chose the people of Israel. It was, in essence, a theocracy. It was a, a favored people, a chosen nation, and they wanted all to serve the one and only true God. It was, there were civil laws that governed their society. It talked about certain behaviors, and it talked about punishments for those crimes. So if you ever read Leviticus and places like that in your Old Testament, you're thinking, hmm. And if you've ever gotten to an, a, a debate or a discussion or for your personal study, you're wondering about social issues of our day. And you wonder why as Christians and as pastors and times we pick certain things out of the Bible and we, and we say do those and we don't do certain things. You ever wonder about that? Ever gotten into a debate about that? And I would say guilty. Guilty as charged. But see, you have to understand laws as written in the Bible. So civil laws were written for, hear this, for specific people in a specific time. So you can go to Leviticus and it'll talk to you about what you can eat out of the sea. And it talks about basically saying don't eat shellfish, don't eat shrimp. Now, how many of you violate that law? When have we ever preached against eating shrimp? Never. Am I ever going to? Never. Probably gonna have some with cocktail sauce this summer. But why would I hold that or why would I push that away and take something else from Leviticus? There's civil laws, there's ceremonial laws. In Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, you see the words clean and unclean, clean and unclean, used repeatedly. The, the, this had to do with the temple practices and the sacrificial system. And then there are moral laws where God, and God has this right, we have to be careful with this, but God says what is right and what is wrong. Paul would later say in Romans 1 that he's put it on our heart. He's seared it into our consciousness. There is a moral lawgiver. There are moral laws. And these don't change. These are laws for everybody. They transcend time and culture. Okay, you follow me? And so when, when Paul came in Galatians 3 and Romans 7 and many other places, he says what? Hey, there's some laws, man, that we, we, we forget about those laws, right? Because you are, you are free from having to observe those laws. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I've come to fulfill the law. What does he mean by that? He means all those laws, are po they point to me. 
You need to look to Jesus. Hebrews, the greatest of books on this subject in the Old Testament, close to James, talks about this over and over. We have Jesus now. Thank God. I don't think I'd be in the ministry today if I had to be like the priest of the Old Testament and all the sacrifices. But we have a new covenant and we have one who sacrificed for our sins. So all that we don't have to worry about. We can appreciate it. We need to understand it. We need to feel the weight of our sin and how it separates us from God and how it's destructive to us and to others. But we live now in a new system. And this law is what? The law now is love. The new law, it's love. And that is free. For us, we can't think about this as a bunch of you shouldn'ts and a bunch of rules. We ought to think about this as I get to. I get to because I'm loved. And knowing that your love allows you to walk in freedom. And James is saying, don't forget that. In the hardest of times and trials and temptations, receive the word, remember the word, respond to the word that, of truth that's planted in you and it is free it's boundless i say it often but jesus doesn't shrink your world he enlarges it there is freedom to run and freedom to have great joy because of the law of love that he gives let's pray together